This is Cade Massey, practice professor at the Wharton School. On this week's Wharton Moneyball Highlight Show, we talked to Ari Wasserman. First time to talk to Ari. He's a national football writer for The Athletic, and he was in Tuscaloosa for the Texas-Alabama game. He's also been a he's been forecasting uh, what's going to happen this season, and we debrief that as well as get a look at the early returns around the country in college football. This is Ari Wasserman. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. We are delighted to welcome on Ari Wasserman. Ari is a first-time guest. We are thrilled to have him on here for the first time. He is a national college football reporter at The Athletic. He is known for a number of things, some of which we are going to get into, but we strongly recommend following him. One of the best ways to follow him is a new podcast Athletic has going on called Until Saturday. They've got something up pretty much every day, different format every day. Wasserman's on a bunch of them. You can also follow Ari on Twitter or in his writing at The Athletic. Ari, good afternoon to you. Thanks for making time for us. Yeah, anytime. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm delighted to talk to you. We we tried to get you on the preview show. That didn't work out. And we thought, well, let's get him after week two because that's going to be Texas, Alabama. And Ari, we'll get into this in a minute. Ari's been known for a while for this philosophy of stars matter. But this summer, the summer of 23, he's been known as a Longhorn prognosticator, being way out front saying Longhorns are going to beat Alabama. Longhorns are going to beat, are going to make uh, the playoffs. You've taken a lot of flack for this. And one of the questions I'm curious about, uh, you've, you, you've, you've said, look, it wasn't me. I don't have any wins. But but still, what has been the reaction? You caught so much flack and you were so high profile in your forecast for this year's Longhorns. What's been the reaction since they did have this nice win in Tuscaloosa? Yeah, well, they haven't made the playoff yet. So, um, you know, they're, I'm not technically right. So we'll see when that happens. But the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, I've been burned by by giving confidence to Texas before seasons have started the last few years. And, you know, the stars matter mantra just means that the teams that have the most best players win the most. It's not that complicated, though there's a pretty argued debate for some reason. Um, but in the past, I've looked at Texas's roster and I thought, well, this is going to be a really good because they're more in their conference. Uh, they don't really play anybody that stacks up athletically outside of Oklahoma. This will be a good year for them to break out, and they turn around and lose three or four times uh, to lower middle-tier teams in the Big 12, and it's just like, uh, I don't know how many times I can do this. And last year I swore off Texas. I said I'm not going to get fooled again. Um, but then I actually spent the summer to you know kind of dive into what Texas has on its roster. Um, and, of course, the data is there for – you know, the stars equation, but, you know, you have a quarterback in Quinn Ewers who uh, is coming into a very important season and you had to expect that, you know, his raw ability would develop a little bit more and he'd be more uh, of a star this year. I mean, you look at the receiving core uh, with A.D. Mitchell and Xavier Worthy and, you know, J.T. Sanders, the, the outstanding tight end there. Uh, and then, of course, you add into the fact that they have really good lines at both sides of the ball. And, you know, even though Texas talented in the there have been some deficiencies those deficiencies have come to bite them a little bit 
But this year, when you look at their path and their roster and, you know, the key positions necessary to win, they were very strong. And their schedule featured two games in which they, you know, could lose, you know, theoretically, not accounting for upsets, against Alabama and Oklahoma, both of whom are not peak versions of themselves. So if you look at this team, you know, it takes a leap of faith a little bit to say, hey, Sark is finally going to figure it out. And Texas is finally going to get past whatever has been cursing them for all these years. Um, but it really wasn't that big of a hot take, you know, and some people think it is because Texas has a tendency to squander some really good teams. But this team, I think more than all the other ones, actually is built to sustain success at this level. And, you know, beating Alabama on the road, I think, was a good start. I think we'll find out later down the season that Alabama's an extremely team. They're not going to be winning the national championship off of this one win. But going out on the road uh, in the second game of the season and beating Alabama by double digits could have been more, uh, not more than double digits, but more than 10 points. And, you know, kind of asserting yourself as a, a team that deserves respect, I think is a nice step forward for Sark's program. And now, of course, the ultimate test is uh, can they beat Oklahoma, which will be always an interesting game. I think they'll thump them. And whether or not they cannot step in a bear trap and lose to a Kansas State or a Texas Tech or a TCU and actually just get the job done for the first time since, I don't know, 06? 06, that's right. And well, they had a hell of a season in 08 um, and didn't get there. And then obviously 09 went well for a long time as well. But um, I, I, that, that all makes a lot of sense to me. And you say it wasn't that strong a take, but it, you know, it, you, you, you stood out there and took a lot of flack. And um, there, you, you had very little company, very little company out there. What do you get from going to the game? You went to this one. You know, you probably watch you, you watch a, got a lot of games in person, but you see a lot of games on TV. How, how do you, what do you think you learned differently from actually being there in person? I know it's more fun and you learned something about the atmosphere, but what did you learn from being in Tuscaloosa Saturday night that we couldn't have learned from watching it on TV? Well, I think that the thing that I learned most, I mean, if everybody who watched on TV saw that, you know, Texas is super talented and, you know, has some players and, you know, Xavier Worthy and A.D. Mitchell might be one of the best two one-two punch combinations of receiver in the country, but it was after the game, uh, really, that kind of stood out to me, of the way that people were celebrating, the, the way that that team was clinging to each other, the smile on Sark's face. Um, it wasn't just a normal... I've been to a lot of games in, in my career, and it wasn't just a normal celebration of we finally beat somebody good on the road. It was more of a celebration, almost as if the program was turning a page. You know, mm-hmm. and they've been mocked a lot of times for, you know, being tech and all, you know, I wrote in the column, they're not back. They're just very good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have to be very good before you're back. And, you know, I think very good is even better than being back. And, and I kind of felt like to me that that might've been a turning point in this program's trajectory. And I, it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if in five or six years, we go back and we, we look at the celebration that these, these players had with the fans there uh, who are chanting SEC and, you know, how the team ran over to the Texas section and, you know, was hugging and, you know, high-fiving players and uh, and fans and all these things that were happening. It was almost like a mass celebration of, like, finally our work is paying off. You know, and, and Steve Sarkeesian said after the game that, you know, you can't, you know, be defined by this one game or this one game won't define their season. And I think that's the right viewpoint because they still have a long way to go uh, in terms of avoiding the upset. Uh, but I just thought that the way they played, uh, how they were, you know, how fast they are, 
you know, I've seen national championship teams in person, covered Ohio State for 10 years before going into this national role. I know what it looks like. And, uh, you know, Texas certainly has that look this year. So um, just after that game, it kind of seemed like it was a moment where, you know, people were turning the page. And I think that that was a cool thing to witness. That's that's cool to hear. Um, let's talk a little bit about how you apply that same thinking to some other schools. And in the in the rhetoric around Texas this year, you, you, one my my take on your some of the things you said were people have this kind of easy narrative. It's too easy a narrative to say Texas hasn't done it, and you're saying just not relevant. One of the things I heard you say in a number of different places, it's not relevant what happened in you know 2010 or 2011. And the question is, there's a general question here of when is history relevant and when it's not, and when is it not? When we try to forecast how a program's doing, what's going to happen this year, we have to look at history, right? But when, when, how do you think about? Now, you're, you're we're analytics, but you're a good football analyst. How do you? And I think you really hit this one right. And I'm curious how we generalize it. When do we use the past and when do we not? What did? Why did people get this wrong to the extent that they did? They, we don't, we, that'll be proven out over time. Yeah, well, I think history is important if you're looking at the, you know recent past or you're using the same players or the same coaching staff uh, to use that as a measuring stick. And there is a certain history that I do think that is relevant to this Texas team. And that's that they are, are led by a coach that uh, hasn't won 10 games in his career. And he's been at some, some really good places in his past and winnable conferences and still hasn't been able to get that done. So if you are a person who doesn't believe in Steve Sarkeesian's ability to finally get a team over the hump, um, then I can see why the history there would make sense if you wanted to use it. What I don't get into is what people did to Clemson before they broke through. They have this blunting um, history of coming up short, and that just because that happened, you know, in 2010 or 11 or 9 or 12 or whatever years, you know, what happened on the field a decade ago has absolutely zero relevance whatsoever to the regime that's currently there the players that are on this team, the schedule that they're playing, and whether or not they'll be able to get it done. And you can certainly make the case that Steve Sarkeesian has, you know, underperformed based on the, you know, jobs that he's gotten and the pathway that he took to get to Texas. Um, But what you can't deny is that this is probably, uh, probably is the deepest, most talented team with no inherent weakness that he's ever coached in a conference that, you know, doesn't have very many superpowers and the two superpowers that they do play um, again, are not peak versions of themselves. So, you know, I look at the information um, based on that sort of thing of what does this all mean? What do they have and how for done that projects backward? And, you know, sometimes that's relevant if you're looking at the you know last few years or, you know, the quarterback is the same or there's a coach that has a, a deficient room. Uh, but when I look at it, I what Texas is known for uh, or what they've done isn't necessarily relevant to me. And also, too, they're also one of the teams, one of the few teams even, that have won a national championship in the last 20 years. Uh, and as the talent starts to concentrate toward the top, uh, the, the diverse nature of this sport in terms of national champions is, is becoming fewer and fewer. And it's not like it's impossible there. And they have one of the greatest players of all time, obviously, on their team at that moment. But I think that there's a lot to learn based on the types of players that you have, uh, the quarterback that you have who, you know, Sam Ellinger was a really good quarterback, but I think it's possible that Quinn Ewers will prove to be or turn out to be the second best quarterback. And all 
things kind of add up to a a result that is better than losing to Kansas State. So obviously we still have to, you know, wait and see and how that goes. And they play a weird Wyoming team this year that already beat Texas Tech and that's uh, coming up this weekend. And, you know, TCU is a tough game for them. And they've got some weird road games like Texas Tech. That's going to be like the Super Bowl for the Red Raiders. You know, they have some tests coming up. But, you know, what they have on this team, I think, should be able to, to withstand that. And, you know, now that they beat Alabama, too, they have them all again. So I still think that they could lose a game, uh, win the Big 12, and still get into the playoff at this point. So uh, very nice trajectory for Texas. And I think that it's going to be a, a pretty good situation to follow for the rest of the year. Well, Ari, you're, you're great to indulge uh, uh, some Texas loyalty here. Appreciate it. Um, and, and glad to hear the optimism. Let's talk more generally. You talked about concentrated talent. I'm curious, you are so known for the Stars Matter idea, and we have seen increasing concentration over the years, but we don't yet know how NIL is going to affect that concentration. And there are certainly lots of examples where it feels like it might push back in the other way. You know, if a team like Texas Tech jumps up and grabs a Micah Hudson, a five-star wide receiver, Micah Hudson, of course, he hasn't signed anything yet, but he said he's going that way. It's an example of NIL maybe peeling away some of these very good players into teams that wouldn't have been able to get them otherwise. What is your sense of what NIL is going to do to the concentration of these stars that seem to matter so much? Yeah, I think that NIL is an interesting dynamic, and I know that Arizona, the school that I went to, picked up a five-star kid from, from Tucson, and the pitch was, you know, local businesses here would rather support a local kid who grew up here who loves uh, U of A. uh, And, you know, that's a pretty lucrative opportunity for you to be the big fish in the small pond. Um, And obviously, as we know, the the concentration of talent is so uh, important. Two years moved from Texas, they had 18 of the top 100 players in the country. Um, I mean, when you think about the numbers on that, 18% of the top 100 players in the country, literally one out of five went to one school. And then you add in the Alabama, the Ohio State, the Georgia results, and you have, you know, 65 to 75 players uh, in the top 25 um, or or the top 100 picking schools that um, are all the same. So it's just a very interesting dynamic. And, you know, that's also shifting with the the transfer portal as well. So every single time a a five-star player or a top 100 player picks a non-traditional power, you're flattening the, the talent base uh, or the talent advantage that the Alabamas and the Texases and the Georgias have, which then makes upsets more prevalent and uh, more diverse results more likely. Now that is kind of a funny thing to think because we're now we're going into a playoff era where everybody gets in and the upset is kind of less than what um, it is interesting to see how the talent uh, disparity is changing because even the Florida State team this year, who I think also has a chance to make the playoff, um, is built by um, their five core players, and I think four out of the five are all five are from transfer from programs. Right. So their their talent on paper doesn't necessarily stack up with an Alabama or a Georgia, but you have three or four players who transferred in who are three stars or zero stars who are going to be Heisman finalists and top five picks in the NFL draft. So that, to me, if you can plug and play some of the misevaluated players or players who are, are uh, playing above their uh, ranking, then you can kind of even the playing field that way as well. So, you know, I think that the bottom line with NIL is this, that the vast majority of players uh, who are coming out of high school are probably uh, more prone to an astral because they were 
NFL draft and the NIL money offered up front is probably peanuts in their mind in comparison to what their first NFL contract is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, we did a study at the athletics this summer where we went back through the, um, you know, five-star prospects from the previous decade. And there's no proof in the data that going to Georgia, Ohio state or Alabama makes you more likely to get drafted as a five-star prospect than it would be to go anywhere because those guys are freak athletes. Uh, and they are just, you know, so good um, at such an early age that something almost has to go wrong for them to not get drafted. So uh, that's interesting. Uh, that's good observation. You know, it, it, it's just an interesting dynamic because I mean, if you just go look at the quarterback situation in the NFL right now, um, you don't, uh, have a very clear and identifiable route to becoming a star in the NFL. I mean, one of the best players of the position went to Wyoming. The other one went to Texas Tech. It's not like you have to go to Georgia to go. I mean, in fact, Georgia doesn't right. have a star in the NFL back position. You know, recruiting is a very complicated thing, but sometimes the complication of it makes it a little bit easy to get lost in the numbers. And with the proper context, it all kind of makes sense. And you know, you do have to have a certain baseline of talent to win a national championship, but to answer your question in a long-winded answer, uh, NIL and the transfer portal certainly can help kind of make it more competitive rather than, you know, the national championship game uh, being decided by 50 points like it was last year. Right. And it already feels like this are so early in the season, but it does feel like we have um, some fresh faces um, in the playoff conversation as early as it is. Look, one, one, a couple, one game in particular I want to hear your thoughts on, from this past weekend is the A&M Miami game. A&M probably had the greatest uncertainty of any power five program coming into the year, given what's going on in the coaching staff. And they went out and dropped a game. They were, they, they weren't favored by that much, but four or five or something like that. And they dropped it by a healthy margin against a Miami team that people thought were probably still a, a year or two away. Um, when we, when we look back at this game at the end of the season, what do you think we're going to say? Are we gonna, was this the beginning of Miami being really good, or is it just going to be a little bit of a surprise? And maybe A and M isn't as bad as they looked. Maybe they, maybe it's just a few bad breaks. What's your interpretation of what happened in Miami Saturday? Well, that's a that's a complicated game because it wasn't just like uh, bad luck. You know, I mean, they gave up forty eight points. So, uh, you know, the thing that was most interesting to me about this game was the amount of pure talent. Uh, that A&M has on the lines, I thought would have been enough to overwhelm Miami. Um, and the most ironic part about this whole thing is that Jimbo Fisher spent the entire offseason discussing what he was going to do to fix that team's offense. And, you know, lo and behold, they come in and DJ Durkin's defense gets shredded by Miami, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, there's a certain aspect of this of like, well, I figure it out. Financial resources standpoint, and an IL standpoint, facilities, location, geographical access to recruits, all of that stuff, they've got every advantage in the world, and they just can't seem to, push, uh, to uh, piece it all together. So, you know, when you, you look at uh, a team like Miami, there's also a, uh, a team that's kind of in a similar situation when it comes to building and location and, you know, all those things. And, you know, I think that this will be a revelatory game now in, in terms of what I think of uh, – Texas A&M, I think that this is just another exposure that something's off there because I thought there was a legitimate chance this team could go win 10, 11 games this year just based on the on the pure talent. I mean, Evan Stewart, uh, Connor Wegman, the defensive pieces they have on the lines there. I mean, it just goes without saying that, you know, they would be a really good football team and it just didn't look like that on, sun, on Saturday. So um, I'm excited to see if Miami's good, you know, teams this year. Think about Florida State, Michigan, and all these new teams that 
haven't traditionally been in the college football playoff discussion are all like rising to the occasion right now. And that's an exciting proposition for the sport as well. Mm-hmm. It, it is it's just for fun when Miami is doing something down there and isn't disappointing week after week. Um, one last question for you, Ari, but it's a complicated one. And that is, what are you expecting to come out of the PAC 12? It's the most interesting conference race, at least at this point in the season with arguments to be made for any number of teams to come out of there and USC, I just got to look at our our model for the first time that breaks it breaks teams down offensively and defensively. And we have USC with the best offense in the country by far, like a good couple of points better than anybody else. And then they have an almost a little bit better, but almost uh, NCAA average defense. I mean, it's a huge disparity between the two. Can they is can they do that? Can it can that can that can that be uh, is that offense enough? And if not USC. If you had to put your chips on somebody out there, who would it be? Yeah, that is a doozy of a question to end off of because it's the hardest question to answer because, you know, on paper it looks like USC should be the team with the way that they play offense. Um, And they had one of the worst defenses I've ever seen in my entire life last year, and they still were maybe a Caleb uh, Caleb Williams injury away in the second half in Vegas against Utah from winning that game. So, um I mean, I guess my guess right now, based on the way that it seems like USC's defense has improved week over week, that I would, uh, you know, potentially go with the Trojans to come out of that conference. But I'm pulling something up on my phone right now. I want I want to read it to you. Um, and this is the hardest part about it because uh, for how good USC is, they've got a very challenging schedule coming up. Um, mm-hmm. The first half of the year is a joke. They're going to beat teams 56 to 10. You know, like they did the uh, Saturday. You go look at their full schedule here. Got a bye week this coming weekend, uh, and then they play Arizona State, and then they've got an interesting game against Colorado on on, on September 30th, which is a little bit more interesting than we thought it would be about a about a month ago. Uh, but here's starting on uh, in mid October at Notre Dame, at home against Utah, bye week against Cal, then Washington, Oregon, and UCLA all back back to back. Like, if you look at the way that their schedule is situated, I don't even know if it matters if they're the best team. I just don't know if you think that that defense and that team can win, you know, five out of six of those games. You know, that's a really hard proposition to be put in. I mean, Washington, Oregon, and UCLA all in a row to end their season, and that doesn't even account for the the Pac-12 championship if they make it. Like, that is really, really, really hard. Um, And the thing that you'll say about the Pac-12 and – you know, I'm not a uh, revolutionary by any stretch of the imagination because it's pretty clear as day. Shador Sanders at Colorado. You got uh, Jaden Delora at Arizona. Uh, Cam Rising should hopefully be coming back for Utah. Michael Penix at Washington. Bo Nix at Oregon. Uh, you know, Dante Moore is, is an emerging freshman at UCLA. I mean, they've got the best quarterbacks in college football, which, uh, you know, I think is a – a uh, pretty easy way to make an assumption that if you've got the best quarterbacks, you're probably going to have some of the best teams. And, you know, that's the case. My guess right now would be uh, USC, uh, but I look at that schedule and I second-guess myself all over again. And, of course, Washington, too, um, is another team that you have to keep in, in, in frame because they are uh, some of the most exciting offensive uh, performers out there. Michael Penix throws about as beautiful a ball as I've ever seen. And if they can figure out their defense a little bit, they're going to be dangerous, too. So, and, you know, here I go again with Oregon and, you know, what they do. So uh, I think that that is a conference placing it. Well, and they, they're 
they're playing an unbalanced schedule out there. So it, SC gets a tougher draw in a year where the draw might end up determining things. Plus they have the tougher yep. non-conference. And so just on strength of schedule alone, you might put the chips on Washington, but that, that makes a lot of sense. Ari, uh, listen, man, we'll let you go. Thank you for making time for us. It's a fun time of year. Love the work that you're doing. Hope to talk with you more down the road. Okay. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Ari Wasserman at the athletic. You can catch him there. You can catch his, uh, podcast until saturday until saturday he does that with a number of collaborators there at the athletic covering uh the national beat for college football all right for shane jensen and Adi weiner this has been Cade massey come back and join us next time between now and then enjoy your sports <laughs>